let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolayo. Hello and thanks for joining this new episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity. A future of opportunity through digital identity. So that's what I read in the page of the guest we'll have today, which is a young but very promising company called Tycoon. They are working very interesting projects and very interesting stories you're going to hear today from two guests. We have two guests today. So let me introduce you my guests today. First of all, Khalid Maliki. After many years working on user experience at the Dutch Ministry of the Interior, Khalid's keen product design knowledge combined with a passion for social impact led him to put all his time and efforts into co-founding the award-winning digital ID company Tycoon. Khalid believes self-sovereign identity will positively impact billions of people's lives and has advocated for its adoption on the most important stages from the Economic Forum in Africa to the United Nations in New York. And my second guest is Jimmy Snook. Jimmy is a musician, business developer, and entrepreneur currently residing in The Hague in the Netherlands. After having worked as a professional musician in Spain and having started his first company in the Netherlands before the age of 20, Jimmy was accepted in the prestigious McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and co-founded Tycoon. As an evangelist of data privacy and early adopter of crypto, Jimmy has spoken about the merits of blockchain and self-sovereign identity at conferences and institutions worldwide since 2017. Hello, Khalid. Hello, Jimmy. Welcome. Hi, Oscar. Thank Hi. you for having us. <laughs> Thank you for having us. It's great having you and I'm really intrigued to hear the stories of this very promising company and tools that you are building today. So I would like to hear a bit more. How was your journey? I know you've been doing a very interesting scene, but how you really end up in this world of a digital identity. It's been quite a journey. And also when you're doing something that you hope that will impact people's life positively, it gives you a lot of energy. It gives you a lot of motivation and also you know, resilience to really keep on what you're doing. And that's actually what keeps me awake every morning. So yeah, we started this journey since 2016, actually, where the idea was born. And in 2017, we joined an accelerator in Amsterdam. And the rest was history. We got a lot of traction due to being on conferences on different stages and also, you know, partnering up in an early stage with an international NGO gave us a lot of boost also and motivation to keep on what we are doing. Same for me. It started with Tycoon through crypto, I guess, blockchain. I've been involved in that space for a little bit. Cryptocurrency, you mean, right? Yes, yes. From Bitcoin back in 2015. And it was this idea of, okay, that there's something broken in an identity system where 1 billion people don't have identifying documentation. And at the time, perhaps naively at that time, I thought, okay, so if you could just marry this blockchain technology with this identity problem, could you solve it? And that was kind of the premise. But then ultimately through iteration, so okay, this blockchain part is actually super small. But on the way, we did find other solutions for it that kind of funneled into the concept of SSI. Yeah, very, very interesting. So you already mentioned the blockchain is one of the pieces in what you are doing in self-sovereign identity, but there's much more than that. So I'd like to hear 
Well, the simplest way you can explain us what is self-sovereign identity and how it differentiates from the other ways of identity that we have, both the physical and the digital identities. Sure. So SSI, self-sovereign identity, essentially it's the concept of a higher user autonomy over digital identity data or personal data in general. So we went from the physical IDs that we still have in the real analog world to the internet. And when the internet came about, it scaled rather fast without someone really saying, okay, maybe we should stop and think of uh, privacy or identity layer before we move onward. <laughs> and it kind of scaled so rapidly that there was never a chance to bake something into the internet. And so we came up with all these creative solutions along the way, and where in the 90s, it was common practice for just everyone to have their separate login credentials and everything per separate service provider. And that kind of narrowed down into a more federated model where now a bunch of large players held a lot of this personal data and these identifiers and for authentication and whatnot. And then, you know, more to a slightly more user-centric model with OAuth and Fido came about. And now this is kind of the, the next phase into really giving that back to the user and really making it user-centric, whilst at the same time, minimizing the data that has to be disclosed. So for instance, in proving anything about ourselves on the internet right now, there was this famous New York Times comic on the internet, No One Knows You're a Dog, which basically comes from the fact that it's really hard to prove beyond reasonable doubt that I'm not a dog or <laughs> that I'm Jimmy. I could send you a scan of my passport or whatever, or a scan, and but that can still be quite easily doctored. And there's also still that degree of over-disclosing our data, because in our current credentials, there's a lot of superfluous information when proving something about yourself. And still, a lot of this happens by having to upload these documents into several portals. And with the concept of SSI also comes the fact that we have to minimize that amount of data. So either disclose information about ourselves on an attribute-by-attribute attribute basis, or for other things such as age or perhaps income, a mathematical proof, a zero-knowledge proof, so that I don't even have to show you my salary specifications or my income statements or my date of birth, but that I can prove to you that I am between X and Y, that I am over 18 or 21 years old, instead of giving you that actual data. And so we wrote an ultimate beginner's guide to self-sovereign identity that you can find on the website. And apart from that, a great resource on the high level of self-sovereign identity. You can find in one of the blogs from Christopher Allen back in 2016, he wrote this article called The Path to Self-Sovereign Identity, where he lays out these 10 principles, ranging from consent, persistence, portability, interoperability, and data minimization, which also gives you a good view of the concept of self-sovereign identity. And then on a more technical base, what we were just talking about with blockchain, blockchain is one of these pillars of SSI in the sense that it's a verifiable data registry within the concept of SSI. But what a lot of people, at least three years ago, and us also in the ideation stages, incorrectly assume is that just because there's this blockchain component, it means that you're putting personal identifiable information on this distributed database for everyone to see, which is exactly what's not happening. You can't just hash a passport and put that on chain. Because for one, it's not compliant to any sort of privacy regulation out there, especially not GDPR. But also it's for good reason, because 
We also don't know if such a ledger will ever be breached and then all that even hashed PII would be out there. And if it's on an open distributed database, of course, it's still open to be correlated. So there's these two other pillars, one being verifiable credentials and the second being decentralized identifiers. And they're both standardized by the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, who also gave us the URL, for instance. And the verifiable credential, on the one hand, is essentially a way of digitally watermarking data to essentially create natively digital credentials and kind of changing that mental model of just taking this passport and making a digital version of it to essentially rethinking how credentials should work on the internet and really making it native to it. And then the decentralized identifiers, which essentially now we use a host of different identifiers, such as our email, our phone number, sometimes credit card, Facebook login, etc., which are, of course, sensitive to correlation. And that has caused for a host of large breaches and all the way from targeted advertising, which is whatever, to election meddling. <laughs> so the tale of that is quite fat and long. And with decentralized identifiers, it's basically giving back that bit of autonomy to the user in being able to make these peer-to-peer connections to other institutions or to other people to prevent that correlation and basically have that in their own hands again. What that would look like in practice to have those three pillars together is that essentially if the Dutch government would want to give me a digital version of my passport, they would essentially create a verifiable credential for that. The Dutch government would have an identifier, a public identifier for themselves, a public did, that they would anchor on the ledger on chain. And that is purely so that when then they issue me my verifiable credential, my passport, over another one of these peer-to-peer encrypted channels, and I want to use that passport to prove something about myself, that verifier can check on the ledger that it was issued by the real Dutch government at a certain point in time. So that it's not a fraudulent document. They can trust that, okay, I can see that the real Dutch government issued this, issued this document. It hasn't been revoked since. It hasn't been changed. And so I can trust that Jimmy proving his age here or whatever, or proving that he's a Dutch national or owns his passport, that that is valid. And that's essentially where those three pillars come together. Another concrete example I can give from a personal story where my partner, she's from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and she came to live here in the Netherlands and we had to apply for a partner visa. And because she thought ahead, luckily, she already got a legalized birth certificate and legalized passport copy, a legalized marriage certificate, a divorce certificate, and even getting that birth certificate, a legalized copy, that's an entire story of its own because it was so cumbersome. But essentially, she got all this documentation, came to the Netherlands, and then I had to go to Khalid and ask Khalid, hey, could you attest to me working for Tyken with a signature under an employer statement? I had to go to our accountant and ask for payslips 12 months back to prove that I had been earning enough over the past 12 months. I had to get my passport. And then essentially we'd had to dump all this information into a government portal. And then we found out we needed another document, which was a certificate of non-impediment to marriage abroad. And you can only get this in the country of origin. And now luckily, 
the Netherlands and Canada have a good relationship, so she could go to the embassy and get a statement on lieu of a certificate of non-impediment to marriage abroad. And she had to pay for this and she had to make appointments and get a legalized copy for it that I could then upload. And then I talked to Khaled about this and he said like, okay, well, if she would have been from Morocco, you would have had a problem because she would have had to go back to Morocco. She would have had to fly back to Morocco to get this certificate. And then still, you know, we had to upload all this documentation into a portal and then some desk clerk will see this and go through it and approve it. And we have no idea where that ends up, which is a scary notion. And I explained to her the concept of SSI and she quite succinctly said, okay, so I essentially could have done all this from my phone. (laughs) I was like, yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So yeah, that's kind of succinctly SSI. Yeah, definitely that example, especially shows what are the challenges that Self-sovereign identity is trying to solve now because there are still, you said there are standards, correct? You told me there are standards already about these three pillars. For instance, not too many governments, I don't know if any are currently using that as a solution. Yeah, exactly. It's still quite early stage also just because of the infrastructural technology has had to mature and also to the point where we can finally actually put it into reasonable production because before, theoretically, it was possible, but it would essentially require anyone using it, any organization to strip out (laughs) their whole current system and replace it with a whole new system and build everything. And and that's, of course, not how anything gets adopted, but it has to be a viable alternative to whatever is out there now with enough benefits, whether it be in cost saving or reducing in friction or increasing revenues or whatever. And now we're finally getting to the point where we've developed the technology enough that it's a viable alternative. Could you tell us now some of the projects, the main projects you have been working now with your products? Yeah, I can take that one. To start first, a lot of identity systems and the way how we obtain identities in the West and in more developed countries, most of the time we take it for granted, right? And we don't really feel the pain. I mean, this is, of course, a story that resonates with everyone, but what really triggered us to do something about this is the fact that, you know, Jim already mentioned that there are more than a billion people undocumented and they don't have an even the basic rights to have access to education, healthcare, banking, and be like part of society. And sometimes the struggles they are feeling is sometimes come from very simple logistical challenges, like they just don't have enough money to take a bus to another region or city to register a child's birth to the other extreme where people are really losing their identities because of man-made and natural disasters. And we saw that this is actually a very big problem. Luckily, in the identity space, especially digital identity, there are a lot of actors actively improving the status quo. And I'm not talking only about self-sovereign identity, I'm talking about digital identity in general. And within that space, you have, of course, the SSI community who's actually bringing this extra higher level of privacy and autonomy. But what we did really missed out in that whole ecosystem is that there are almost none who are focusing on the vulnerable people, the people that really are on the front line and feeling the pain of losing their identities or not having one in the first place. And we saw that during the influx of refugees, especially Syrian refugees to Europe back in 2014 and before, we met people that are engineers or doctors and they couldn't prove their credentials or their diplomas because there are no universities anymore that you can just pick a phone and call them to verify if they have obtained a diploma. 
And then you see that these people either, you know, are stocking shelves at the grocery store or doing other works because they simply can't prove that. So the projects that we really focused on since the beginning is how can we bring a more access to these people to, you know, a better livelihood, to be included in job markets, to have more access to simple services. And that, of course, that's not directly by giving them an identity, but giving them an opportunity. And that's what we, you know, focused on. And we partnered up from since the beginning with the Netherlands Red Cross that we did a few pilots with. One of them is in St. Martin, the Caribbean, and other ones were in Ukraine, for example, and now in Africa, Kenya, and other countries, where we helped the NGO at least to come up with a system. Because the problem they are having is, of course, they need to handle and process a lot of personal data. And that's also during a crisis or after crisis. And once they leave that country, they need to kind of, what are we going to do with the data? We need also to be GDPR compliant and we need to comply with all other regulations and laws. So how can we give this kind of autonomy back to the people affected without compromising on having a honeypot or avoiding having a honeypot of data because they become a target themselves? And then you get these breaches, and especially when it comes to the most vulnerable people. The most recent project, for example, which I think yeah, we're really proud of, is what we have done in Turkey, together with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the United Nations Development Program in Turkey, with other partners that partnered up to improve the livelihood of, of Syrian refugees. As we know, Turkey you know, hosts more than, I think it was around 4 million Syrian refugees. And it's also the highest population of refugees in the world. And they need to kind of integrate in society and become as one part. The problem is that we went there with certain assumptions that, you know, okay, let's see how we can help them with giving them a platform or a digital identity that would help them. All the assumptions we had to throw out of the window because we thought they have this temporary protection card that they get from the government to prove that they are who they are. But it was like the least of their problem at that time. So we saw like different, what really matters for them, for example, is being included in a job market and have more opportunity there. And we saw that, okay, there is actually a very cumbersome process when an entrepreneur or a business owner in general, either being a refugee or not, is able to hire more refugees and so creating more opportunities. And in that case, we said, okay, let's improve that process. And through our platform, just making it possible for the business owner to apply for a work permit so that he will be able to hire those refugees and give them more opportunity. Yes, well, it's super interesting. This project, the last project in Turkey, definitely has a million people impact. So definitely it's, it's excellent the job you're doing there. I would like to now, because now understanding more how it works in practice with people, but of course the foundations of this self-sovereign identity are relatively complex. And when I've been digging into that, feels like, okay, this is definitely, as a concept, is amazing. You are showing right now, you're telling us how it can solve problems. But when I want to use it, it feels like there's no easy way to use it. So I would like to know how you are been tackling the problems about uh, usability, how to make it really easy for anybody to use applications like this. I can start, and if you want to elaborate on that, Jimmy, as well, then you're welcome. That's actually a main point. That was one of the main reasons I joined Taiken, because talking about such a cutting-edge technology always comes with <laughs> a very high bar of how can we educate people to use this technology. But in fact, it doesn't really matter. You know, No one knows how we are using email. It just works. No one knows the underlying technology. And of course, because this is a new technology, in the first 
three to four years, we were talking about this technology itself, which doesn't matter to people. They don't give a shit about it. <laughs> Sorry for the word. What really needs to matter for them is just the ability to have a very simple interface that they intuitively design that they can understand and they can get the job done. That's it, you know, period. So what we have achieved to do, for example, in Turkey, is that people have an application which kind of mimics the conversational apps as we know, like the WhatsApp and the Facebook, because everyone is used to those. When we did the ground research, we saw that all refugees or the most of them have, there is a high penetration of smartphones in Turkey, and they're all part of a communication application that we're using because that was also one of the main resources of information. So we mimic that in our user experience and make it like, you know, someone is assisting you. And we call the app Anna, which actually stands for I am in Arabic, but Anna is also a nice name. So it's Anna helping you out to do your paperwork in an easy way. So for them, it was like, oh, before this, I had to go to different institutions, obtain different proofs and combine that in a dossier and then send it out to be able to apply for the work permit or having an intermediary which costs a lot of money, and that is also cumbersome. So for them, it was like a different step from that to having just an application, get some proofs from, let's say, a chamber of commerce that you own a business, get a proof from an accounting firm about your accounting report, and then just with one click, you apply for a work permit. And it was like a wow moment because that's what needs to work. They don't have to understand of course, you need to give a feeling of the mental model of this is a safe environment where you are sharing data to someone. That's also, you know, that's very important to give that. But on the other spectrum, they just, you know, okay, with few clicks, I can share data with another institutions without even leaving the comfort of my home or environment. If I elaborate on that from one step higher, what I talked about previously in terms of offering a viable alternative, the use of the technology should not be obstructed by the current processes. So you shouldn't have to ask an organization to completely rip out their current infrastructure and replace it with this new shiny technology. No, it should be able to be an extension of what's already there for the purpose of adoption. It should be able to be easily integrated. And that's also something that we found was at the end of the day, we provide the tools to make this happen. And uh, when we talk about these identifying documents, for instance, the project in Turkey, what Khaled just mentioned, we did that together also with the Istanbul Chamber of Commerce and the UNDP, the Turkish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, because of course, Taikin giving out any sort of permits that doesn't mean anything. We don't have that authority. We should be leveraging the existing players in the space. And that is kind of counterpoint to some on the more libertarian <laughs> SSI side, there are a few, but nonetheless, the ones who think, oh yeah, finally, you know, everything is self-sovereign and we can just attest to each other's existence and we don't need the government anymore. And we don't, but then, that of course is not reality. The existing bastions of trust should be leveraged in order to be able to use this technology to give more autonomy to the users. And for us, a way to do that concretely is by making sure that the organizations that want to use this technology with all its merits do not per se need to have a whole different application and don't per se need to upend or uproot their entire technical infrastructure, but could also do this on API basis. 
So in Turkey, we built a web portal and iOS, Android applications, but we also made it clear that for other organizations wanting to use this, all those actions that we showed in terms of issuing, verifying credentials, giving of consent and everything, everything can be done on API basis as well, which makes it a lot more attractive because now it's like, oh, okay, so it's actually a viable alternative now for other services out there. So I can actually compare uh, also just on a cost basis how this measures up with what's currently out there. And that also goes for things like unified logins or single sign-ons. Like, oh, I can look at Auth0, but I can also look at this alternative, which is competitively priced and it allegedly has these higher security and less friction and better privacy implications. So I can at least look at it or at least get someone to build a POC for me or build an MVP internally. And then we can play with it and see how that works. And lowering that bar for other organizations that are outside of our little identity bubble (laughs) to actually start playing with it, that for us was also important because at the end of the day, you don't want to keep pushing this technology. At some point, you just want that to be a whole lot of pull just because it scales a lot faster that way. So you consider that the application, if you see only from the citizen, from the end user point of view, that your application already has been, in terms of usability, easy to do all the steps needed from the end user point of view? Yeah, so that's what Khaled just touched on, that from the end user point of view, it should just feel like magic. There should not be any implication of knowing what blockchain is or even verifiable credentials. And it should essentially feel like magic. And what we've been saying in developing this and developing the product, Anna itself, is that in two, five years, whatever, people should take this for granted in the same way that now when you go to the grocery store and you have an iPhone with your debit cards in there and you click the off button twice and you get your Apple wallet and you pay, people take that for granted now. Five years ago, you can do that. We still had to carry our wallets with our different debit and credit cards in there. The only reason I still have a wallet is because I still have my insurance card, ID card and all those things. So in a similar way, people should be taking this for granted. And on the other hand, it should be easy for the organizations to start using it. And that's now we're at that inflection point on the technological development that now that has become easy. So it's not like an organization needs to have a whole dev team trained because even training a dev on the theory of SSI and being able to get started to develop something, it can take eight weeks to train one developer. That's a high barrier for any organization to make that build decision. And you don't want them to have to, because if all those organizations need to make that build decision, it's going to take forever. So they need to have a viable buy decision somewhere of being able to leverage this. And yeah, we're at that inflection point now where we can finally make that easy to do. I want to add here that also it should be accessible in the sense that, of course, a lot of these approaches and solutions are very technology driven. But as Jimmy said, it shouldn't matter for the end user and it should be also accessible for all. And what I mean with accessible for all is think about the millions of people that don't even have a smartphone or even a feature phone is one of the first assets. Maybe a whole tribe, sometimes you see like villages in Africa. We have also been there, you know, for example, Kenya, where only the village chief has a phone for the rest of the... So how are you going to manage the identities for those people if it's giving them access to other services? So it should also be inclusive for a low-tech or even a non-tech environment, and not only for 
the futuristic stories that we hear all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely it's good that you mentioned for the person who don't have the, a mobile phone with basic smartphone capabilities and also so easy access to internet as well. So because for still there will be in the coming years, big part of the people who don't have access to that. So I'd like to hear more now. What do you see for the future about your plans of Tycoon? And also what are the type of use cases that you think you'll be solving in the coming future? I think jumping off from what Khaled just said, there's been a really big focus on SSI on the lowest hanging fruits for development, which has, of course, been smartphones. But something that's quite terrifying to us is if this technology scales so fast, you're going to leave a lot of people behind. And just what Khaled said in terms of feature phone and making it feature phone accessible, that's something that we've been working on also with an NGO to be able to test this. And to be able to do that, we're rolling out a new service, Anna Cloud. And with Anna Cloud, essentially, all these operations can be done on API basis, which also makes it a lot easier to develop this for feature phones. So the integration for that, we're going to be very much looking forward to, to not leave so many people behind. Yeah, that's our main focus right now, is scaling out Anna Cloud, getting people to use it, scaling up our project in Turkey scaling out feature phone capabilities and at the same time pushing the rest of the Anna platform. Okay, excellent. We are almost at the end of this interview. I would like you to leave us, both of you, some ideas, some practical advice for anybody to protect today our digital identity. I can go first. I think it's kind of, uh, especially because UbiSecure, of course, is an identity company. Tiger's identity company. People listening are probably at least interested in identity. So it might be kind of a dead horse to be. But password managers people. I still meet so many people who don't use password managers and who don't consider the fact that they should be changing their passwords or using different passwords. And they have no idea that, that oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that being a security implication. <laughs> even, even people with an identity who don't use it, even though it's so easy and convenient to get that started. Something like 1Password or LastPass. I think there's even some open source alternatives out there as well. So the biggest thing you can do if you haven't already is just get a password manager. You picked my tip, Jimmy, but nevertheless, I have another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's very important. And I hope actually, you know, the development is going towards actually a passwordless access. It's not widely adopted yet, and it's really still it has to prove itself. I would say, you know, don't put your sensitive data on paper. That's also that we see very common. To be honest, not being hypocritical, I did it as well. I put it, my password is just on paper. <laughs> and then if you don't store it in the correct way, you will lose a lot of access to basic services. And it's a very cumbersome process to get it again. I really like that point because that's actually what got me to use a password manager is that just being in the cryptocurrency space with Bitcoin and all these other blockchain projects, the times that I've lost a password to a wallet and I could see money sitting in that wallet and not being able to access it anymore, that for me was the breaking point of, okay, I should get a password manager. And that was just because I lost a notebook or a piece of paper <laughs> that I had written the seed words on or whatever. So I thought, okay, if I'd just gotten a, a password manager, that would have paid for years and years of this. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot for your tips. It was a great talking with you uh, understanding more what you've been doing in Tycoon. Amazing stuff you're doing now. I like to hear you do progress on these projects you're having today, such as in Turkey. And of course, how 
you also, it's on your mind that every product, not only the technology, but the real product that you are building, you are thinking of the people who could be left behind. So that's, we should not leave behind anybody. So thanks a lot for that. Please let us know how people can find you either personally or the company or the project you have. Yeah, yeah, you can find us on tykan.tech. That's T-Y-K-N dot tech, T-E-C-H. You can find there, like I said, an ultimate beginner's guide on self-sovereign identity. You can find us on Twitter under Tykan Tech. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram. Personally, I'm ID for good on Twitter. So just ID for good, one handle. Again, Jimmy and Khalid, was a great pleasure talking with you and all the best. It was really Thank fun, for having uh, us. Oscar. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by UbiSecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at ubisecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time, 